Hey, I want to welcome you all again. Uh, my name is Ricardo Stewart. For those of you here this first time, um, personally, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, I'm usually one of the main preachers here, but today, thankfully, by God's grace, I don't have to preach, and it has nothing to do with the game last night. <laughs> guys, it's time of mourning and brokenness. You just saw the video. So, <laughs> but here's what we have. I do, I do think we have a treat. Last week, I told you guys that week two of this series that we'll get a chance to hear from one of my favorite people in the entire world. Um, this particular person has been able to influence me as well as many other pastors in this city where he spends the majority of his time in Canada. He's a professor. He's been a preacher. He's been a teacher. And he speaks all over the country and all over the world and spends a few months here um, twice out of the year here in Phoenix with us training young pastors uh, theologically and not only just pastors but me personally been able to help me think through how to lead my wife and be with my wife as well as uh, lead my kids and understanding of the gospel has helped us shape this series and understanding this consumeristic culture that we were in and to celebrate this time of Advent and so if you guys do me a gr- good favor uh, in welcoming Mike Goheen as he comes to the stage. I think that's on now. I forgot to turn that on. Good morning. It's good to be here among you. And uh, what I did want to say to you is sometimes a, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. I want you guys to know that you have two of the best pastors I know in North America. Um, I speak a lot to young pastors middle-aged pastors, even older pastors, around the world, and uh, know a lot of them. And I've been impressed with a number of the leaders here, and Ricardo and Jim are pretty special leaders, and I think you need to know that. Ricardo needs to lighten up a bit when it comes to ASU, holds that a little bit too tightly. But other than that, other than that, he's doing well. I'm glad he walked out of the room and didn't hear me say that. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we want to hear from you with your divine authority, but also your divine power. We don't want to simply have words that go into our ears or ideas that go into our minds. We want you, living Christ, to come to us clothed in the words of the gospel, to grip our lives and hearts to change and transform us. Lord, open our eyes that we might see you, the living Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. About a decade ago, I was in the Hungarian part of the Ukraine speaking, and I was traveling with a pastor. And we had been traveling all day, and I got, we got back on Saturday night, very late, around 11 o'clock or so. And he said to me, you know, I'm supposed to be preaching tomorrow morning. And I had no time this week to prepare, because you're here. And so he said, do you think you'd be willing to preach for me? And I said, sure, thinking I could choose my own text. He said, 
And the text for tomorrow morning is Romans 7. Now, I don't know how well you know Romans 7. That is one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. I know you've just had a couple of sermons on it. It was supposed to be one sermon. I think Ricardo had it turned it into two. It's a difficult text. And I remember as I went back to my apartment that night, very late, thinking, why did I say yes first? But then saying, what can I say to these people? I've got a half hour, 40 minutes, through an interpreter, a translator. I don't know them. I don't know where they are. I don't know what the person preached before and is preaching next. What in the world can I say? What word from the Lord can I speak to this Hungarian congregation? As I read through Romans 7, and I did over and over again, I don't know how many times I just kept reading it through, trying to see what is it that really is hitting me, what is the Spirit saying? The thing that struck me about Romans 7 was Paul's big view of sin. And as I listened to Paul speak in Romans 7 and how he spoke of sin as a seductive and destructive power, that has control of the whole of human life, both individual, societal, societal, and cultural life. As I heard Paul speaking that, I realized just how narrow, and I've been teaching, I've been pastoring and teaching theology for a while, how narrow my own view of sin was. And I realized how easy it was for me to speak of sin simply as disobedience to God, which it certainly is but how powerful it was and how wide the scope of sin is. That it literally has polluted and corrupted every part of human life. And so I spoke on that. But just so you know, I did not neglect Romans 8. Now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news that explodes at the end of Romans 7. But as I preached on that, it began a thought process. It was in the middle of the summer, and it began a thought process over the rest of the summer that made me think, boy, i got to broaden and deepen my view of sin to understand the work of Christ. And so I was back in the classroom two months later in September, and I'm speaking to my freshman class in Christian worldview. And as I'm speaking to them, and I get to Genesis 3 and I'm talking about sin, I decide to pull out all the rhetorical stops and to lay it on them as heavy as I can. And I'm thinking, I don't want them having the same narrow, cheap view of sin that I grew up with. I am going to lay this on thick. And I did. And as I was sort of escalating in my own rhetoric, a young, new Christian sitting down in the second, well, over, in the, I was on the main, same stage, over to the second row, over to the right of me. He's going like this. <laughs> and his eye, mouth has come open, his eyes are wide, he's unaware of himself, and he's going like this. And he's looking around at everybody else, brand new Christian. And then he finally couldn't take it anymore, and he goes like this. I said, yes. And he said, what can we do? 
What can we do? And I remember thinking then, and much more so since, exactly, exactly. It's precisely when we come to that point where we realize the power of sin that we say, what can we do? Is there someone who has the power to liberate us? It's precisely when we come to the point where we say, realize the scope of sin, how it has dragged us into its evil clutches in many more ways than we realize. It's when we realize this that we say, and come to that point and say, what can we do? And it's only then that one, we realize the power of the gospel, that's what Ricardo spoke about last week, and two, that we realize the wide, comprehensive scope of the gospel, that Christ is reconciling all things as far as the curse is found. Maybe you're here visiting for the first time, and you saw this very powerful, I believe, emotional video about sin. And now you hear this opening story about the scope and power of sin, and you're thinking, what does this church do? Does it talk about sin all the time? Is it love to wallow in it? Well, no. No, there's a lot of gospel here. I know that because I come at the 5 o'clock service when I'm living down here. And so, yeah, there's a lot of good news here. But this is Advent. And Advent is a time where we enter into the longing of Israel to be liberated from sin. Probably the best-known hymn during the time of Advent is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Do you know it? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. I can't sing, but you get the mournful tone of that song, don't you? The most common song for Advent. And that Advent is that time where we recognize the power of sin, not so we can wallow in it, but so that we can lift up our eyes and see the hope we have in Jesus Christ and that one day he will make an end to it. It will break its power and he'll reconcile and restore all things. Now we're dealing with Colossians 1 through this Advent season. And the Colossian citizens, those living in Colossae, the, a Roman city, they understood well the scope and the power of evil. Because they lived in a world that was populated by the powers. They called them deities or powers or authorities or rulers. They had many of them. They recognized power that was at work in culture and they spoke of Vulcan, the god of technology. They spoke of Plutus, the god of wealth. They spoke of Bacchus, the goddess of pleasure. They spoke of Mars, the god of war. They spoke of Venus, the goddess of love and sex. And unifying all of them, and this is what Jim will speak about next week, unifying all of them was the god Roma, especially as he was embodied in the Roman emperor. 
And so when Paul comes to speak to them about the powers, and that's the main theme of the Colossian letter, him breaking the authority and the power of these powers. When he comes to speak to them, they're going to hear good news. But what about us? How do we hear Paul when, it's, when we hear that things in heaven, things in earth, visible, invisible, throne, powers, rulers, authorities, this language that he uses throughout Colossians, how do we hear this? I wonder if we are not quick to demythologize. Because after all, if you go to ASU and take a course on these gods, it'll be in the section called mythology. After all, we live in a secular world, we know those don't exist anymore, and we can place them back at a very naive, immature time. But I wonder if that's true, or whether there are very much these powers at work in our world. When we see how people's lives are so trivialized by technology, is Vulcan dead? When we realize that we're in the grip of a consumer culture where on Black Friday people actually died as sacrificial martyrs to this God, we wonder, is that God dead? When we pursue hedonism and entertainment, as one author has put it, we're entertaining ourselves to death in the United States, he says. Is Bacchus dead? And when we see how much money we're spending, huge amounts of money globally, on security and on arms. Is the God of Mars dead? When we realize the grip that pornography has and sex is used for advertising and selling, is the goddess Aphrodite dead? And when we see that a normal kind of patriotism since 9-11 has flown into a nationalism where there seems to be a reverence for troops never seen before in history, is the god Roma, the nationalistic god of Rome, dead? In other words, are these powers still alive? Perhaps the difference is that in Rome, they just gave them vivid names. And today, we camouflage it with language that comes from the sciences, especially psychology, sociology, and economics. Perhaps we need to hear this message from Colossians as much as the Colossians did. But maybe more important than how the Colossians understood these powers, maybe more important than the way we understand them in our secular world is how Paul understood these powers. Because he is speaking about them a lot, not only in Colossians, but throughout his letters. These, these powers are also powers about which he speaks. And there's a diagram that was used last week that uh, uh, Ricardo used that he introduced to show how Paul, especially in Ephesians and especially in Colossians, understood these powers. You can put that up. And in this diagram, we see that Paul's view of sin is a lot bigger. It's a lot bigger than most of us realize. Paul understood not just sin to be not just individual. That's the top circle there. He understood the individual sin to be primarily idolatrous where we took good things of creation, sexuality, patriotism, um, and so on, technology. 
And what we do is we begin to absolutize those things and centralize those things in our lives. And we begin to build our societies and cultures around these things. And so his language of world speaks of the systems and the culture and the society we build around these idols, a systemic evil or a structural idolatry. But for Paul, and this is key to understand, it was precisely the idolatry of our heart seen in these systems that gave a foothold to demonic powers at work in the world. And that's why there was a spiritual battle taking place. And he knows now as he speaks to these Colossian Christians, living in the midst of a world that says there are these gods at work, he needs to bring them good news. He needs to bring them good news. Now again, how do we hear Paul? How do we hear Paul as he begins to speak of this? Do we want to demythologize these powers and simply make them something of the past? Well, in this next quote from N.T. Wright, as he's speaking about Colossians 1, and he speaks about the way in Colossians 1, after we've heard from Colossians 1, 15 to 20, he's going to talk about the way we need to bring this to bear on our own lives. Here's what he says as he ends his discussion. The basic target of Paul's polemic, the main thing that the gospel was bound to attack was idolatry. Even the God-given Torah, that is law, could become an idol. How much more the man-made political and economic systems of Paul's world and ours. To apply the gospel to the idolatry of our modern world will take more prayer, discernment, humility, and wisdom than is usually given. But look at this last sentence. Not to apply it in this way is to implicitly deny it. To not hear how Paul is speaking to us today is to deny Paul's words. We need to hear what the Spirit says, not simply to the Colossian church, but to the church in North America. Now, I would make this argument that in the same way Roma seems to unify much, many of the gods of Rome, that the consumer worldview is that which unifies many of the idols that are work in our culture. Not everybody would agree with that, but that's what, what I certainly would argue. In any case, it's certainly one of the powers. Now, for the next three or four minutes... Can you go back to your university education? Pretend you're in class again for a minute. Because I'm going to use a lot of, I'm, I'm going to use three full slides. So you're not going to, it's not going to be what you typically would get in a sermon. As a matter of fact, I don't usually use this many sermons, but I thought it might be helpful for you to hear about an explosion of literature that's been coming out in the last 20 years that is showing how wide the scope of destructive power of the consumer worldview. This is written by non-Christians, almost all of it. And these books are exploring the way it's affecting our lives. It's not exploring the way it affects the environment, everybody talks about that, or the way it's affecting the poor, a lot of people talk about that, those are important. It's talking about the way it affects you and me who live in the middle class and are the benefactors of this society. 
And so I want to show you that list very briefly, and all of these I could take a lot of time in working with. If I can get them up there, I can work on that. Here are some things. First, the chronic lack of time that we have for family, friends, prayer, leisure, exercise, and volunteer activities. Are you busy? I'm old enough to remember a 1960s commercial. This is before there were many of them around. And the commercial was of a young woman with a very clean frock on, and she was standing next to, I think, I can't remember, I think it was a washer or a dryer. It was something new on the scene anyway. And she was looking at it, and she's saying, now I can throw all my clothes in here, I don't have to wash them by hand. And the announcer says, what are we going to do with all the free time that we're going to gain from these time-saving technologies? By the end of the 20th century, he said, we're going to have so many of these time-saving technologies, we're going to have so much spare time on our hands, we're not going to know what to do with it all. That's what you have, right? You have so much spare time on your hands because of all this technology that you don't know what to do with it all, right? Or are you busier than perhaps anybody has been in terms of of time? Are we a busier people than ever before? I think that's the case. But here's what many books are talking about and we could add more. It's from too much work. That in, by 2000, the average married couple with children was working almost 500 hours a year, more than 1979. And then, but it's also from Tending Goods. Very interesting book by a guy named Stefan Linder. Here's what he does. He says, for every item that you own, it will take a certain amount of time to take care of that item. If you have a car, you've got to wash it, you've got to change the oil, you've got to do... If you have a shirt, you've got to take care of it in terms of washing it, ironing it, putting it away. And what he does is he works out a calculus and says, here, for when you own these things, here's how much time it's going to cost you to own these things. And then he says, makes the argument, if you want to know why we're busier than ever before, we're busy tending our goods. Now, I could add on to a number of other things, but the chronic lack of time for all of these things that are important, not getting enough exercise, not taking the time to pray, is part of a society which is systemically and structurally devoted to consumption of goods and also experiences. If we go to the next slide, there's a lot more. There's also the cost for service sector. How many of you are university students? I wonder how much you're paying and how much debt you've got. Thankfully, my kids got through with very little debt, but I'll bet you a lot of you are piling up a lot of debt. Why is it that health services and education is going up and we can hardly contain it? It's because our society is driven by profit, as driven by businesses, and guess what? Doctors and professors have to be paid as well, but we're not making a profit in those service sectors, and so the price goes up. But also, there's debt and anxiety that are, are causing issues. I won't, read this th- I won't read this quote, but the amount of debt that is growing, producing anxiety, is reaching new levels. 
psychologists tell us. If we can go to the next one. This is a little bit different than the way I designed the slides, but I think it's working. Physical health. There's a doctor who's written a book, Dr. Richard Swenson, who argues that much of his patient's pain is the result of what he calls possession overload. He says it's affecting, as it was in our video, it's affecting our bodies physically. But the psychologists are pointing out how much it's affecting our psychological health as well. Wasn't it Goldie Hawn that says everybody in New York has their own therapist? It's affecting us psychologically. But these other areas, I could point to books on every one of them. That is that there are other areas of creation life that are being affected by our society. Marriage. Family. One that interests me greatly, because I'm, I was an athlete and I love sports, is the way sports is being deeply affected by this broader cultural worldview. I was asked yesterday about concussions. And as we discussed that, I said, you've got to understand it in its broader context. But also education. Worship. The service industries and so on. Here's the point. This worldview that we are in the grip of is much broader and wider than we think. And even those of us who maybe don't feel that our main temptation is spending are deeply affected by a culture in which idolatry reigns and has a very powerful impact. Now, in some ways, I wish I didn't have to preach an Advent. I wish I could come and have a lot more good news. I wish I could also talk about the many good things that have come from our culture and our society as well. But the reality is that very many of these things are affecting us. And in a sense, if we want to be in that place where we long for the coming of Christ and his work, we're going to have to come to the same point where this student came from and say, what can we do? Let me just leave you with this one quote from a number of psychologists who studied a number of young people. And here's what they said. They said, many studies show that consumerism, materialism, the pursuit of money and possessions seems to breed not happiness, but dissatisfaction, depression, anxiety, anger, isolation, and alienation. These are not Christians, but they conclude after studying hundreds of people, in short, the more materialistic people are, the poorer their quality of life. If we come to this point where we really believe that some of this, we say, what can we do? We're ready then for the good news that Paul proclaims in Colossians 1. Now as Paul begins to speak to the Colossians, he knows that there's a danger. He knows that they can very easily fit their Jesus into the prevailing worldview and make him one more of the gods, one more of the powers. That was a tremendous danger. We don't understand that because we can't understand their worldview. We don't feel it. But that was a danger for them. And what he's got to come and say is good news. This Christ whom you are following is much bigger and much greater than any of those powers that you fear. But what about us? Why do we need this message from Colossians 1? Let me suggest this is the reason. That very, it's very easy for us to limit and reduce Jesus to a personal Savior. 
That is to reduce him to simply one that saves us and forgives us as individuals. And forget what we just read in Colossians 1, that Jesus is so much bigger. The best book that is out there that tells the Western story is written by a non-Christian, actually one that's anti-Christian. He tells the story, and he says, in 19th century and moving into the 20th, what began to happen among Western Christians living in the States, in Canada, and in Europe is that the power of the Enlightenment worldview was so shaping them that they began to reduce their view of Christ. And Christ became less than creator and reconciler of all things. This is what he's saying, non-Christian. He says, until all they had left by the end of the 19th century was a personal savior. And they'd given over the rest of their lives to the Western worldview. Now, he's not commenting on it angrily. He's just commenting. That's what happened among Christians. If that's even close to true, do we not need to hear the message of Paul to the Colossians? Where Paul begins by saying, you're the salvation that Christ has accomplished. The salvation that Christ has accomplished is so great that it's greater than all of those powers. And he speaks before chapter, verse 15, he says that you've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You won't necessarily pick that up, but when he says redemption, he's referring back to the Exodus. That's where the word redemption came into the biblical story. And he's saying in the same way Israel was under the powers of the Egyptian idols represented by the god Pharaoh, supposedly. In the same way they were under the grip of those idols, but God came in and with a mighty arm liberated them so that they could live under his authority. In that same way, Paul says, you have been liberated from the powers, he says to the Colossians. You've been liberated from these, these, these powers that populate your world that you fear. You've been liberated. And then he goes into verse 15. He says, let me tell you about this Jesus who has liberated you. That's the point of this text. And he says, this Jesus you have lived, that has liberated you, number one, he's nothing less than the fullness of God in human flesh. He's created all of these. So therefore, he's the creator of all of these powers. He has created all those powers that fell against him, demonic powers, but all of these aspects of creation that have been idolized, he's created all of them. We read that for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All of these powers out there, he has created. He is God. That would have been good news to the Colossians. But the second thing he then says is that he unifies all things. I'm not going to talk about that. That's the sermon for next week. He's the one in whom all of these things have meaning. But then thirdly, he says that, through all, that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him so that he could reconcile all things. That's what God is doing. He's about restoring and reconciling and renewing the whole world to again be united under Christ.
He's about healing a world that has been broken by sin. He has gained authority and defeated the powers. And he says he's done it in two ways. First, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's precisely through the cross, precisely through the cross, that God has gained this victory in Christ. I don't know if you have read this with the cultural background or not, but in Colossians 2.15, here's what we read. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know what the image here is? It's the image of a ticker tape parade in Rome. Actually, it's called a triumph. And it's a parade where after a Roman general had won a great victory, he would come back to Rome and they'd have this tremendous parade. And he would go in his chariot at the front of the parade. Behind him would march the Roman soldiers throwing gifts that they got from the bounty, from the nations they had conquered. And behind them, were the leaders of the nations they had conquered stripped naked, bound in chains, with their heads down as defeated foes following, and the whole procession would go outside of Rome and they would be crucified there. That's the image that Paul uses here. And he says, you know what? It appeared from all, for all purposes that the Roman powers stripped Jesus. That the Roman powers humiliated him on the cross and that Jesus was a defeated victim. He says, but the reality is precisely at the cross, Jesus strips the powers and he defeats them. They are now beaten foes. He says the cross becomes that place of the victory over all of sin and evil in the world. Isn't that remarkable? Have we heard that so much that we just take that for granted? The Colossians would have seen, understood crucifixions and the humiliation and the pain and he says this is the place that God has gained the victory over the creation. But then he also says through the resurrection he says that The Christ is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He is the first one into the new creation. He's inaugurated that world to come, that new creation. And he says, now you can participate in that new renewal that has begun. And then he says, listen to this, so that all things he might have supremacy. So that you Colossians will live under the supremacy of his rule in all of your life. You don't have to fear those gods, those powers. Christ has gained the victory. He is now Lord, and he's ruling over all of them. He's broken their power by his death. He's inaugurated the victory in his resurrection. And then he says to them, in verse 21, immediately following this, he says, once you, he points to the Colossians and says, once you, were alienated from God and enemies, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body. You've begun to participate in this as you believed in him and held him fast so you don't have to live under that power and authority of these other gods anymore. You can serve him. He has now full supremacy.
As we come to an end of this sermon, I want to point out an interesting paradox. We're in Advent season. And Advent is about hoping in the future. But as we hope in the future, here's what's so interesting. We're in the book of Colossians, where Colossians is the most, is the book that presents and emphasizes the present salvation of Jesus more than any other of Paul's books. Paul emphasized, I'd say two to one, he emphasizes the future, not yet salvation coming when Christ returns more than enjoying it in the present. He enjoys that, talks about that, but he primarily speaks the future. But here's the remarkable thing. In Colossians, he only speaks about the future twice. And all the rest of the time, he's speaking about enjoying this in the present. Because he's saying, you don't have to live under those powers. And I think that we need that message about the present salvation of Christ as much as the Colossians. So I ask you, what would a people of God look like? What would a people of God look like if they lived under the authority and the supremacy of Christ? I have a couple slides. I'm just going to run through them really quickly. What might they look like? What might we look like if we really believed this gospel? We'd be a community of contentment, simplicity, and generosity in a world of insatiable desire, greed, and envy. A community of patience and self-control in a world of instant gratification. A community of gentleness and kindness in a world with an ethos that is increasingly violent, coarse, sex-saturated, and gross to excite jaded, overloaded consumers. A community of joy and thankfulness in a world of dissatisfaction. A community of mutual accountability in a world of individual autonomy. A community of selfless giving and sacrificial service in a world of selfishness, self-centeredness, narcissism, entitlement. A community of authentic character in a world of surface image. A community of stewardship in a world of waste. A community of justice in a world of economic and ecological injustice. Paul gives a similar kind of list in Colossians 3 for them. But maybe this is what a community that really believes that Christ has supremacy over all things. What a community that's taken hold of Christ is living into that new resurrection life might look like. But we end with this Advent note. Isn't it interesting that only once or twice in Colossians the future is mentioned? But note how important it is. It's in verse 5 of Colossians 1 when he says, you know, your love and your faith have been heard about. People know about how much you believe and how you live lives of love for each other and for the world. But then he says this, listen, the faith and love that springs from hope. Your faith and your love spring out of this hope and this longing for the future. Longing for that day when Christ will return 
And he'll come back and we'll see him ruling all things. That day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. We long for that day. And the more we long for that, the more it has an impact in the present. But there's an Old Testament writer, very famous one actually, who says, Americans have trouble hoping. He says, because that future, this is his image, there's a big mountain of consumption between us and that future. And he says, we're so comfortable and we have so much, why would we hope for anything to change in the future? Now he urges us, and I would urge us, if we want to build that hope, maybe we need to start identifying more with those who are hurting deeply because of this worldview. And as we experience and live into their pain, we don't like doing that. But if we do, we'll start to long for a day when they will not, when they will be able to feed their kids, when they'll be able to live lives that are fully human. And I think the more we do that and the more that we hope, the more it begins to fill us with faith in this Christ who's accomplished this in his death and resurrection and builds into us a deepening love for one another and a love for our world. And maybe it's precisely as we hope more for that future, we'll become a community that lives under the supremacy of Christ in the whole of our lives more and more. Let's pray together.